want to say to that next statement here is that all my seven years in the diocese that I've never personally felt more optimistic about the Advent ministry within this diocese. I've spent some time with Keith Sloan, and while we may disagree on some of the issues of the church, I really sense uh, that Key has a respect for, for who the Advent is and what the Advent believes. And I also sense and really appreciate the fact that, that as long as we don't undermine his ministry, that, that he uh, is with a very loving heart, uh, wants to see the Advent be the Advent. Right. And uh, I, I have some friends in, in conservative parishes and, and more, and, and, and more, and, and definitely what I call revisionist diocese, and they don't have what I have. They feel persecuted, quite honestly, yeah. And, yeah. and I've never felt that way. And, yeah. and I feel more optimistic now than I have for seven years, and I, and I thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you're still a part of the Episcopal Church. Thank you. Um, I think that if we had a chance to sit down and have a cup of coffee or something more interesting, we would find um, several things that we disagreed about. I don't think we would have to look long to find those things. But it is the things that we do agree about that keep us in this church.
if you and I engage in a debate, Dr. Harmon, I am betting on you. Thank you. That's very gracious and kind. Thank you so much, Keith. How do you respond to uh, Bishop Sloan there? Uh, we made it through what? Uh, we made it through uh, uh, 
uh, a lot of crises, such as the civil rights thing, the segregation issue, we made it through pregnant provisions, women's ordination, a lot of things. What, what do you see different about this current issue that you think makes it different? Uh, or, or can you comment on that? Well, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> You sneaky guy, you. But, but uh, yes, in a number of ways. Let me just say this. Sometimes people call it third wave theology, but I think it's important to get at the assumptions underneath it. Uh, the, the, the gospel engages the culture. The culture has a perspective, particularly among its elite. And uh, the culture's right and the church is wrong and the church eventually gets its act together, right? So you have, I mean, in the simp- simplistic way third wave theology is presented is we are wrong on the race issue, uh, we, get, we got fixed, or at least we're in the process of getting fixed. We got wrong on the women's issue. We got fixed. Uh, now we're on the same-sex union issue, and we are wrong, and we're going to get fixed. So, that, so the culture is always ahead, and the church is, as it were, catching up, particularly the elite part of the culture. The difficulty with that is that it, you need to be careful to get at the, the assumptions that are in that so-called paradigm, which are, which are this. The church is sinful and inadequate. Sometimes the church gets it wrong. Sometimes the church needs to be corrected. Absolutely, all that is absolutely true. But the difficulty is this. The church, which is sinful and needs to be corrected, sometimes actually involves itself in the culture in such a way that it embraces stuff which isn't Christian and starts by embracing it and then actually later has to admit its mistake. You understand? So sometimes the church is right and the culture is wrong and the culture actually has to, has to learn from the church. And... We, we could go through lots of examples. One of the ones that nobody notices in American history, which is crucial to me, is the whole area of eugenics. And the reason why it's a crucial area is the Episcopal Church was up to its eyeballs in the eugenics movement. I don't know how much you know about it, but it's the first 50 years of the 20th century climaxing with an incredible Supreme Court decision called Buck versus Bell, where Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said, Three generations of bucks is enough. There was a woman who was going to have a child and she was uh, involved in retardation. And uh, for, the, for the sake of the superiority of the species, they decided that it wasn't a good idea if she had uh, children. Three generations of bucks is enough. Now, that way of thinking, which, was, which has been completely discarded, was something that a number of uh, leaders in the Episcopal Church got heavily involved in. And, uh, and the Supreme Court got involved in it. And they've all, all that has been reversed. So the point, the point is simply to say, first of all, it can work either way. In other words, it doesn't follow that it only moves in one direction. But the paradigm in the Episcopal Church is always presented in one direction. We're wrong. We catch up to the culture. Culture's right. We, we fix. We acknowledge our mistake. That's way oversimplified. The, the second thing to say in terms of what Bishop Sloan said, and again, this is, I certainly don't disagree with what he said that we are here although we're more frail than we were. But, but what I would say in response to that is, sociologically, we, there's a principle that sociologists use in the deterioration of a system called the principle of critical mass. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this concept. It's very important. But what, what they show is, in a system that is about to collapse, the uh, straw before the straw that breaks the camel's back is actually exactly the same size as the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so what you see in deteriorating systems is there is an assumption that of health and a complete denial of the reality of deterioration. 
And since it hasn't happened yet, therefore it won't happen at all. Now, I'm not saying uh, that the Episcopal Church is in the midst of imminent deterioration. That's not what I believe. I believe we're headed into being essentially a Unitarian Universalist sect with a veneer of liturgical covering. That's, that's essentially our future. And, and that has a very small niche market in American Christianity, although an ever-shrinking uh, one. But that, that is where we're headed as of now. But, but what the, the reason I bring up the principle is it doesn't follow that since X and Y didn't crash the system, therefore Z won't. Because in deteriorating systems, even if the straw is the same size, if the system itself is internally weaker, there comes a moment when a collapse happens. And what's so scary is uh, it, you do not know that when you're in the system at the time. For those of you who know Russian history very well, it's a great contemporary example. Henrik Smith's book, The Russians, in the 1970s, has a saying from the workers. As long as they continue to pretend to be paying us, we will continue to pretend to be working. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the book. But if you note the Soviet Union inside, the way Henrik Smith did, he was the New York Times Moscow correspondent for a long period of time. The, 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 that whole system behind the Iron Curtain was collapsing years, years before the fall of the Berlin Wall internally. And nobody was talking about it or even acknowledging the possibility of it. But when you have workers saying things like that in the 70s, you know uh, that the system buy-in is no longer there. And it's only a matter of time. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. It's something just to be aware of. That's good. Faithfulness in little things is not a little thing. Faithfulness yeah. in little things is not a little thing. It is. Uh, and that God will bless that. Yeah. But, you know, other than that, what, what, that's pretty big. It is very big. What, what, what can you say to encourage I mean, the Advent being a conservative parish and the denomination that it is being provided? And other the fact that we believe that we have a bishop that, is, that respects what we're doing, and, and, and I believe that that he does indeed believe that Advent has a place in his diocese. And I've not only been told that, but I actually feel that. Yeah. What else can you say to encourage us? Well, I think th- th- this is a sort of a harder question because it, it involves some risk. But what, what I would say is that what you need to realize is that the relative oasis that you have here is, is a position of strength from which you can go out and minister to others. 
that one of the huge tragedies, I just want to speak about conservatives for a second, is that the, these clergy and others who are lost like deer in the headlights, they don't have any support. Uh, you, you cannot imagine what the Advent could do for somebody like that in all sorts of very distinctive local ways. And I, I want to put flesh on if it's okay with you. I mean, just to give you an example, we, we, one of the parishes, I said this to one of the parishes in our diocese, and they adopted a priest and his family from Massachusetts. And in a very uh, dark situation, they felt. And, and that relationship was a huge source of encouragement in both directions. Because one of the things that happened is they were informed about parts of the Episcopal Church they really didn't know a lot about. And there was a lot of pain and a lot of doctrinal innovation that they weren't aware of. But the flip side is they were able to really help somebody in need. See, the, the, the thing that you need to keep in mind is structurally... I'm in the most stable position because I'm in a, relatively speaking, stable diocese. You're in a stable parish, but what you need to realize is in many situations, people aren't, don't even have that. And this parish is in a position of strength to seek to creatively uh, minister to people like that. You could have a conference and invite people to come to be encouraged specifically for that purpose. But when I say that, I mean have them into your homes for two days and, and minister to their families and their marriages. And that's an example of the kind of... There's very little what I like to call structural relief. And I think one of the interesting things to think about at the Advent, if, if I were here, it would be what are the ways structurally that we can help relieve some of the suffering uh, that some of the people who are trying to be traditional gospel people in the Episcopal Church are going through. Because the, because the loneliness and the isolation and the pressure that some feel is almost unimaginable to most of us. And you can be very, very helpful to them. Correspondence, those of you who love Skype or know Skype, you, you can have a face-to-face conversation with somebody on the other side of the country now. So you don't even have to pick up a plane fare. So there's a lot of technological ways that you can be very creative. That would be an example of the kind of stuff. That I think that we saw that a little bit in the, in the Dawson's Convention. Craig Smollett, uh, you and Andrew and Joe Gibbs were at the table there. We were at the table with another parish that probably has an average Sunday attendance of 30. Hmm. Uh, and they uh, said to us, that they respected the Advent and that they were thankful for our ministry and they told a little bit about their problems that they were having, yeah. having, having a clergy there yeah. so that the Eucharist and, and, and the priests coming in, various priests coming in and one of our guys, Craig, said, well, you know, maybe we can help you out. Would you like for us to come in and, to, and, and preach on some Sundays for you? I thought our eyes were going to well up. Oh. She said, would you do that for us? I'm, I'm actually glad you said this. Let, let me take another quick story. One of my favorite stories that happened to me in the last 10 years is I, I was once doing a, a, actually a vestry lunch after visiting a parish in the Diocese of Texas and one of the lay women who was pretty spunky and I was tired and fried at lunch and kind of out of gas and so I didn't care what I said. And she said, we were talking about this, and she said, well, we can't do anything. And I looked at her, and I, I can't really believe I did this, but I said, on the contrary, you can do nearly everything. And instead of running away from me, she ran toward me. And she said, really, what? And I gave a list of about ten things I felt she could do. Can you believe it? That she, she came up with a ministry where their vestry goes to other parishes and shares with other vestries what's going on and how they're responding and seeking to be faithful all over the diocese. 
But, but, but she said, we can't do anything. And what I said was, it may seem little, but you'd be surprised. <laughs> and they, they are doing a lot. So that, but it's contextual. We have about 20 minutes. I do want to hold to our covenant that we would, we would uh, dismiss at 7 o'clock. But I would like to open it up to anyone that would like to have a question for, for Dr. Harmon or for Bishop Shalom. I quit even reading most of the traditionalist, if I may use it, yes, sure. uh, sources on, on the internet, for instance, is they seem so doggone self righteous. Mm. And even though mm. I have no question mm. that what the direction the Episcopal Church is taking is self destructive and is, uh, is false doctrine, at the same time, we never look at our own sins, it seems to me. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to me, instead of feeling hatred hmm. for people like our presiding bishop, we ought to be praying and praying and praying hmm. for her and ourselves. Hmm. And if there's nothing else we can do, the most important thing we can do is pray. Yeah. I'm actually glad you said that because this brings out one of my points that I haven't made yet that I wanted to make sure to make. And I, I get in a lot of trouble, but it doesn't bother me because I'm, as you can probably t- tell, I have a high truth quotient. Um, conservatives are my biggest problem personally. Uh, I have been caused more pain by fellow conservatives than the rest of the Episcopal Church put together times five. That's point one. Point two is, and this is very important. In Israel, when there's judgment in exile, all of Israel is under judgment. And one of the things I said at Plano the very first time, and have been saying since, in spite of the fact that, to my frustration, it's not being sufficiently noticed, is we are responsible for what has happened, and we are also under judgment. The, 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 the incredible trap of a situation like this is, if they just hadn't done this, we'd be fine. So that it's all out there and 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 it makes me um, I, I, it makes me weep the degree to which conservatives contributed to this and had stuff that the Lord was after that we need to answer for at the time and and through the time up to now and now is enormous and and you spoke to that so i I think uh, here here's here's one of the interesting things about what's going on right now. the leadership of the Episcopal Church is almost impervious in terms of its own self-criticism. If you read most Episcopal publications, and certainly the national publications, there not only is nothing wrong, there's no questions about anything that's happening. Here's the incredible thing. In in the community of those who've left, many of whom are my friends, there's no self-criticism. What is scarier than I can possibly tell you is the degree to which my friends who have left have all sorts of resemblances to the community they departed from. And one of the biggest is a lack of self-criticism, which, if you have a doctrine of sin that's any good, ought to be right. I mean, the right way to respond as a sinner if somebody criticizes you is you assume they're right unless proven otherwise, not the other way around. Now, that's hard to do as prideful people, but you understand my point. So I just wanted to reinforce what you said, and I'm sorry about those conservative sites. I try hard to emphasize... A, ba- a balanced tone, uh, but it is one of the ways that people cope with grief. 
I don't say that to excuse it. I say it to describe it. Well, of course, uh, Bishop Sloan is here too, and Frank. And I will say this to you: my my mother, who's now uh, gone from this world to the next, I'm sorry to say, was a political science major from Duke, and so I was raised in a home where you learned in the area of uh, trying to work with politics to always speak tentatively. As to say, as a young boy, I had Dewey beats Truman beat into my head. So you, so I. It's a very important that I, I, I answer this question tentatively based on what I now see. Uh, it will not be what I said two months ago, and it mu- will probably not be what I say next month, because this, the situation on the ground is constantly changing. In the Episcopal Church, if you stand still, you're moving. You may not think that, but you are. Uh, it, it's a moving situation. So I speak tentatively. Uh, I, I would say this. I think that uh, the, the debate in the Episcopal Church right now is between two groups of people. I don't like the language of liberal and conservative. I pers- prefer reappraiser and reasserter. But the reappraisers, other people call them liberals. I prefer the term reappraisers. The, the people who are the majority party in the power structure of the Episcopal Church, there are two groups in that group of people. One is what I would call those of a more ideological bent. And the other is those of a more institutional bent. And of course, they're both important because if you're interested in change, you have to have an institution through which to get change to happen. If you blow the institution up in the process of change, then you have lost your change agent for the future. And over the last 12 to 15 years, the only national debate that has mattered is between uh, the ideological reappraisers or liberals and the more institutional liberals. And that is still the case. But what you have now is, because of the situation in our culture, with more and more uh, local state Supreme Courts deciding in favor of at least heading toward a greater legitimacy to same-sex unions, uh, say, for example, the recent decision of the legislature in the state of Washington, just to name one, the most recent. But you, you know what I'm talking about, Vermont, and we, we could go on in terms of the kind of things that are... Because of that, and because the conservatives departing have taken away basically an opposition that raised questions. I mean, there is essentially no questioning anymore of the, the trajectory that they're on. The only question is, how fast will it go? And I think that is the question going into this general convention. You can state it this simply. How much will the embrace of the liturgical uh, logic of the new sexual theology come to at a vote at this general convention? That is the $64,000 specific question. So to make it even more specific, they are either going to do one of three things. One is they are going to very quietly move the embrace of same-sex unions and its legitimacy forward in the Episcopal Church. You know, I call it uh, incrementalism. They've been doing this for years. You know, move the ball further down the field while not looking like they're really doing that. That's, in fact, what they're going to be doing. If that happens, that would be a win for the institutional 
reappraisers over the ideological reappraisers because, because you, you need a stable institution. You do it gradually to keep the institution together. The second thing, which I think is the more likely from where I sit is, and I'd be interested to get the bishop's take on this, is I, I think you may see an embrace of an alternate liturgy for same-sex unions in something like the Book of Occasional Services if, and this will be carefully done, if a diocese in its own conscience decides that's what they want to do. So you understand a more legitimated local option where you actually admit what's already going on all over the country anyway, but you just give it more legitimacy by having an official liturgy. Right now, there are liturgies all over the country, but one of the crazy things is they're all different. There's no common liturgy because Vermont's doing one thing and some of the other dioceses like Chicago are doing another thing. So there is a, there is a case to be made to at least try to get it more coherent and at least have all the people that, are, that want to do this to do it in a basically similar direction that one hopes has some theological thought underneath it. The last, which would be the most, I think, dramatic, would be what the Bishop of Olympia said on his blog recently. And I actually cited this on my own blog. He said, this is his prediction, not mine. I think as of now that he's not correct. But the, part of the reason I quote it is he's one of the leading uh, reappraisers in the House of Bishops, he says he thinks they're going to approve same-sex marriage at this general convention. The incredible thing is they easily have the votes to do that. But the institutional liberals are smart enough to know that you can only do so much because you need money and you need people and you need energy. And if you go too far and you lose, I mean, if you lead and you've got very few followers, that's not effective leadership. So those are the three things that are going to get the most headlines. The first is not really going to be noticed at all, very little, and will seem like not much. If I were at the Advent, I would say, pay attention, it matters. You know, m moving the ball further down the field is still moving the ball further down the field. Uh, the, the second would be more explicit, and I think that would raise more need, in, if, if I were here, to differentiate from that. To, to say more explicitly, uh, we believe that this is not a legitimate Christian development. It's something that not only we believe we will not embrace, but we will not uh, in any way allow people to embrace it without explicitly saying again and again, we believe it's wrong. See, that's the hard thing about these, this situation is this is like a woman whose husband has had an emotional affair, but not yet consummated it. And they're still in the relationship. And what she's got to do is continue to say what you are doing is wrong. But after a while, that gets old. And you, it's easier at an emotional level to become a codependent, right? I'm not going to say anything anymore. But if you do that, you are somehow tacitly saying it's okay. One of the hardest things for the conservatives that are still in the Episcopal Church right now is to find creative but nevertheless faithful ways to say, look, this isn't right, and to say it in a Christian way. It's not easy to do. The third would be, I think, a more dramatic development. I don't think as of now that that's likely. It's possible... It certainly depends. One of the things, I, I know the bishop will agree with me on this, when you go to general convention, you never know what's going to happen until you actually get there. It, 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 they can take enormous individual personalities and, and roots that you can't possibly tell until you've been there a couple of days. And sort of, it takes on its own corporate personality. It's a huge meeting, huge number of people. You know, one of the largest meetings of its kind in the world still. It's crazy. We ask lay people to take two weeks off of work to go do this. For those of you who know John Claypool, he had a woman who was a banker in his parish 
when he was here, and uh, she, the, the, her boss came to her after she did two general conventions and said, you either stop doing this or I'm going to have to fire you. <laughs> because she kept taking two weeks off from work once every three years, and then when she came back, she wasn't the same for two weeks to sort of regroup and do re-entry shock and re-acclimatization. So that, that's a, it's an enormously significant meeting with enormous implications and cost to those who are there. So does that, does that get at you? Yes. Right. That that's that's the language that the Bishop of Olympia used. It's not the language that I would use, and I think I would be very surprised if they pull that off bec precisely because of that change in language. That's one of the many problems with what's happening in America right now. Is uh, in spite of all the pleas, the, the brutal reality is marriage has a definition. And no matter what my sense of, of your individual rights are, I can't give you something by changing what it is and then giving it to you because then I'm not giving you what you want. I'm giving you something else. And one of the weirdest things that's going on is we're changing the fundamental definition of a very cherished institution without engaging in all the implications that are involved in that. And uh, it, so I, I think a number of the more thoughtful people in leadership in the Episcopal Church are aware of that, and that is, is a bridge too far. But that's what he says on his blog, and he may be right. That's certainly the direction that some, like Vermont, has, I mean, they, they, are, they are using that language. So that some of the more bold individual states are using that language. Right. Right, right, and and it would. Well, well, that's the difficulty with what the Bishop of Olympia is saying is you you have to sort of tease out what's involved, and if you do it above board and honestly, that's one of the things that you need to do. You actually need to change some very specific canonical language and some very major doctrinal things to get it right, and you cannot just do that at one general convention. I don't think, but. Far be it from me to predict in absolute terms what's going to happen. So, but that's what I meant. Can we ask the bishop to comment on the same question? Yes, I'm, I'm, that would be good. Yes, you may. Thank you. Greg is the bishop of Olympia. Yes. A nice guy. He's um, in my class. He, all the bishops are arranged by what year they were consecrated. Um, Mark Lawrence is the bishop of South Carolina, a nice guy. He's also in my class. Um, so we have a lot of diversity among the people in the House of Bishops that I know the best. Uh, Dewey defeats Truman. Right. I've been to all of one general convention. And, and it was an amazing and bewildering thing. In 2003, I was a, a rector of St. Thomas in Huntsville. I, with great confidence, assured the people that we would never vote for to consent to um, the election of Gene Robinson as Bishop of New Hampshire. I, I was kind of concerned about the House of Deputies because they were a little um, over there. <laughs> but I, I was convinced that the House of yep. Bishops would never let that happen. Um, so. I'm pretty clear in my own mind that I, I'm not a good predictor of what 
interested in you, Stephen, and brought forth by the Standing Committee on Literature and Music, um, asks for authorization for uh, services to be used in trial usage to bless same-gender unions. Um, that committee very carefully and very clearly stayed away from referring this to referring to this as marriage. Yes. This is not a sacramental right, according to what's being presented from the Standing Commission on Liturgy and Music, um, but more like the blessing of a home, more like the blessing of, of other things. It would not, their recommendation is that this not be in the Book of Occasion Services and, right. and not in the prayer book, but in a, a separate volume published by itself um, liturgical resources. Um, the Standing Committee on Liturgy and Music was asked by the previous General Convention to um, come up with theological and pastoral resources and liturgical resources to further the conversation in General Convention, which they have done, and that's the resolution that they'll bring forward. Um, I like Greg Rickle, the Bishop of Olympia. He's wrong. I hope <laughs> that he's wrong. Of course, my, my past history in, in uh, predicting what general convention might do is, is a little spotty, but surely, surely we won't um, we won't do that so that we are referring to a, to this as a marriage. I would just add this clarifying comment about that, and that is that, that, that what was just described, in my view, what the, what the SCLM is proposing, which is the Standing Commission on Liturgy and Music, the, they're one of the standing uh, commissions in bet during the three years between general conventions that has certain official responsibilities. They're responsible for liturgy. I would consider that the incremental step that I was speaking about because notice it was said it's not in the Book of Occasional Services. So it has a quasi-official status in local practice, but it has no official status even in optional litur official liturgy. So there's a, there's a subtle difference between those two. And I think that will be, it's between those two that the interesting debate I think will, will come. Did everybody hear the question? It's a very good question. It's one of the reasons why what's happening is happening. At the last, you just heard the bishop describe the last general convention. One of the things that came up in the House of Bishops is, "Hey, look, in our state, I mean, Vermont is a good example. You know, this is one of the things that people are coming to us and asking for. So it seems odd. Uh, it, the, the short answer to your very good question is, it depends on what the person involved in the pastoral situation actually chooses to do." Uh, a number of them are doing that uh, locally in their own parish. That's not my understanding with what the majority think that they're doing right now. I think that the majority who are doing it are doing it, they are making this distinction between union and marriage that you just heard. So I would say, I would say in the majority of cases, not every case, uh, they would consider themselves praying for the blessing on the union. 
And therefore, they would say it is a blessing on the union, not on, on a marriage. But again, it's, it's, it starts to look more official. And then it looks even more official if you have some kind of liturgy and some kind of event where people are involved. And that's happening all over. Well, Kendall, I want to thank you oh, sure. for being with us. Thank you guys for coming out. Bishop Sloan, God bless you, my friend, and thank you for coming. My parting words to be that if God is not in control, start worrying. <laughs> so, I, I, again, let me just lift up my doctrine of God's province one more time. And I think of that wonderful reading in Second Chronicles, I think it is. The Lord says, This battle is not yours, it's mine. Stand firm and see the victory of the Lord. And I just promise you guys that the Advent's going to stand firm. Whatever happens, we're going to stand firm. <coughs> Again, being redundant, I just thank God for, for Bishop Sloan's willingness to accept the advent of who the advent is. Uh, and let's go forth to the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks, Thanks be God. God.